Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Neha Narkeda, co-founder and CTO of Confluent, the company that's commercializing Apache Kafka. As I noted in a recent post on the age of machine learning, data integration and data enrichment are non-trivial and ongoing challenges for most companies. Getting data ready for analytics, including machine learning, remains an area of focus for most companies. So it turns out data lakes have become just staging grounds for data, and usually more refinement is necessary before you can use data for analytics. By making it easy to create and productionize data refinement pipelines, an analyst and data scientist can focus on what they do best, which is unlock the value from your data. So in this episode, we talk about Apache Kafka's role in all of this. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Neha, co-founder and CTO of Confluent. Welcome to the data show. Thank you, Ben. And uh, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile. I didn't realize that you worked on search before. Yes, that is how I started off my career with. I worked uh, on the search feature in the Oracle database. That's where I spent uh, a year and then moved over to LinkedIn to initially work in on LinkedIn search system. But that uh, ended very quickly <laughs> with my move to focusing on data integration and Kafka, and that is how Kafka was born. So were you, with your background then, kind of in this information retrieval? Yes, that is uh, that was the focus uh, I had in my master's program. I sort of wanted to continue that, and that is how I picked my opportunity to work on the database search feature. And then uh, I found my way to LinkedIn uh, to, uh, to just sort of, you know, in the search of um, working on, you know, new open source systems, distributed systems. So that was my introduction to this whole area. LinkedIn had a very good sort of brand around open source infrastructure. That is what attracted me there. Uh, shortly thereafter, I found that our our problem wasn't so much um, searching through data, but collecting data and integrating it. And um, no one was really working on that area. I, I found Jay who was uh, uh, focusing on that and asked to join that effort. And that is how I ended up working on Kafka. So in the very first episodes of this uh, podcast, I had Jay Krebs. So he had his version of the Kafka origin story. So mm -hmm. for the record, what is your version? of the Kafka <laughs> origin story. So then I can I can play back the tape later and l listen whether or not they are both the same. <laughs> it should definitely be the same, but uh, yeah, I can give you, uh, you know, how Kafka was born. Well, Kafka was born, uh, you know, at a time, at a very interesting time in LinkedIn's history when we were going through a, a ton of big changes, right? We were moving from monolithic applications to microservices. We were putting a lot of other distributed data systems in place, in addition to the relational database and the warehouse. And uh, we were making a pretty big transition to real time. LinkedIn was a very data-driven company and still is. 
And so the question was that how can we integrate data from so many different locations and then ship it to all these other different uh, applications and data systems in real time and at scale? Uh, as well as end up with something that is simple and operable, right? So that was uh, a tall order. What we had was uh, we had a couple different uh, old school enterprise messaging systems that were transferring data in real time between applications, but they were not feeding the other systems because they simply couldn't. Uh, and we had a lot of ETL tools, which is typical in a lot of companies to uh, scrape data out of logs and databases and move it to Hadoop and the warehouse. And so what we were struggling with is um, was that there was a lot of data loss and very hard to operate data pipelines and no central source of truth. Right. Um, and so that is where we started with the requirements for Kafka is that it should be a modern distributed system. It should be scalable. It should be able to scale to lots and lots of applications, but then also lots of engineers, because uh, frankly, that is um, that was the need back at LinkedIn. And it should be able to move data in real time. It started off as a messaging system and quickly morphed into a full distributed streaming platform, which is what it is today. So a, a very fascinating journey. So what... Uh... At, at that point in time, so you mentioned a few things there. So you mentioned messaging systems and ETL tools. So were there anything out? Was there anything out in the open source? So plus what I'm taking from what you said is you were inclined not to build first, but to yes. use, use existing things. So what what was out there? Uh, there were a couple of different systems. I think we were using ActiveMQ. Um, there were uh, closed source systems as well, uh, very expensive ones from Oracle and IBM. But uh, to take a step back, you know, Kafka evolved out of a number of different things, right? Um, there is um, the prior generation of messaging system technology, the ones I just mentioned from Oracle, IBM. Kafka is also an evolution of data movement tools like uh, extract, transform, and load tools, ETL tools. What we did is we basically took those two areas and we blended them together and we put them on top of a modern distributed systems foundation. So the different tools were ActiveMQ, RabbitMQ on the enterprise messaging side that didn't scale but were real time, and um, a lot of homegrown, uh, you know, ETL scripts on the sort of log sort of side. And Scribe was fairly new back when it started. So it would have, you know, what we ended up with is tools could either solve one problem or the other, but not both. And it was really important for us to solve both because we saw this big chasm developing between the request response applications world that all sort of use databases and all the batch analytics world um, around which a lot of the reporting ran. And we said that, wait a moment, there is a, a big world of asynchronous, you know, data processing systems, which is very central to what companies actually do, that is the thing that they want to make real time. And so what that needs to look like is a central streaming platform that can store streams of data, be able to move them around, as well as be able to form a foundation for stream processing. And that is what Kafka is today. But the reality is, uh, even if you're working for a startup like LinkedIn, you have to justify the time and resources that you put into a project like Kafka. So what was the first product or project that you were able to point to management and say, look, this would have been, <laughs> this would have been impossible without this Kafka thing? Yeah, th that's a very good question. I think the very first one, if I remember correctly, were we were putting Hadoop into 
place at LinkedIn for the first time. And uh, I was on the same team that was responsible for that. And uh, the problem was that, you know, all our scripts were actually built for another data warehousing solutions. The question was that, are we going to rewrite all of those scripts and now sort of make them Hadoop specific, right? And what happens when a third and a fourth and a fifth system is put into place, which was also happening very quickly. And so the the initial motivating use case was that, hey, look, we are putting this Hadoop thing into place. That's the new age um, data warehousing solution. It needs the access to the same data that is coming from all our applications. So that is the thing uh, we need to put into practice, which is which became Kafka's very first use case at LinkedIn. From there onward, because that was very easy, and I actually helped uh, move one of the very first workloads over to Kafka, is that it was so easy that it was hardly uh, difficult to convince the rest of the LinkedIn engineering team to start moving over to Kafka. So from there onward, Kafka adoption became pretty viral. Now, I think years down the line, uh, all of LinkedIn runs on Kafka. It's essentially the central nervous system for the whole company. So I, I, I just uh, went through the uh, proposals for our upcoming Stratus Analytics Conference in March next year. And yeah. there were a lot of submissions from LinkedIn of, of uh, projects. Uh, not all of them are open source that uh, sound school for uh, big data infrastructure and machine learning. So at some point, you, you decided to make Kafka open source. Was that an easy decision, and also was that was it easy for you to convince your management? Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, I think that back at LinkedIn, right, the the secret sauce was really the data and the product side, right? So the people you may know, algorithm, and uh, how we actually connect all the different sort of uh, we leverage the, the LinkedIn graph to create value for the LinkedIn user, right? So that was the secret sauce. What was not so much the secret sauce and what we were more sort of ready to open source and use that as a mechanism to attract engineers into the company was actually the infrastructure products, right? So there was already a precedence for open sourcing data infrastructure products from Voldemort uh, to all the other systems. So it was not a very hard fought battle at all. It was, um, if I remember correctly, very straightforward where, you know, Kafka is just one, uh, you know, yet another data infrastructure solution from LinkedIn that is broadly applicable. So it was not hard to convince LinkedIn. Uh, Our own personal sort of motivation behind uh, open sourcing Kafka was that what we saw were these big changes that were happening at LinkedIn. But when we projected it forward, we actually saw that these are all the changes that are happening at all the other companies out there. And so what we wanted was to actually open source this so that uh, a lot of other companies could leverage the same sort of solution that uh, made LinkedIn uh, sort of, you know, more scalable. By the way, uh, before you built Kafka, I assume you went around and talked to other engineers in the valley just to make sure that no one mm-hmm. was, no one had such a system. Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. We, uh, I remember, I think we ended up talking to the early team and and they were pretty early if I remember correctly and now all the details are, are blurring out a little bit but um, essentially I think a lot of those tools were built to be Hadoop specific right and that was the main reason why we said you know what uh, the trend we are seeing is a lot of distributed data systems each that is built to solve a particular problem 
are being put in place. So Hadoop is only one of those, you know, endpoints, which is used for large-scale data warehousing, but there's Cassandra and then there's Elasticsearch. And, and so why build something that is specific, you know, for one ecosystem when the problem is really much more broadly applicable? And if you solve a problem for just log ingestion, uh, you know, how do you solve it for all the other applications? How do you make a generic, you know, general purpose, highly scalable? Back then, we thought only messaging system. So for our uh, audience that may not follow things so closely or are not uh, super technical, how would you describe Kafka today and what are some of the more common use cases? That's a great question. So Kafka today is distributed streaming platform. In other words, a data system for streams of data. What it does is uh, three different things. It is a storage solution for streams of data. So it can easily store, you know, days, weeks, months of data at times. Um, it is a foundation for stream processing. So not only can you collect and store streams of data, you can join them, you can aggregate, you can create more streams out of existing ones. And it can uh, be used to connect different streams of data between systems. So that is the Connect API. All of these capabilities map to the core APIs of Kafka. So there is uh, the messaging API to send and receive data. That was the primary one. There is the streams API to do all kinds of stream processing operations. And there's the connect API to create connectors to all the other popular systems. So you have hundreds of these connectors all using Kafka underneath the covers. So that's the, the place. The place of Kafka or a distributed streaming platform is between databases on one side that power request response applications and warehouses on the other that, that power, you know, batch reporting. In terms of use cases, you know, Kafka is used very widely across thousands of companies worldwide. Uh, about a third of the Fortune 500 uses Kafka for various mission-critical applications. So the, the, the thing about Kafka, which was actually hard to explain in the early days, is, well, what do you use it for? You know, it's very similar to um, what, how you might describe, well, how our database is used, right, for a number of different things. So that is how Kafka is used, in fact, from, uh, you know, instant credit card payment processing to collecting live data from all these IoT devices, connected cars, you know, any use case where there is a need to collect data for quick decision making and quick processing or there's a need to break silos in a company and make data centrally available. Those are all the use cases where Kafka is used. But when it is used in its full form, it uh, is equivalent to a central nervous system that connects data no matter where it appears in a company and makes it available to all the other places. That is the use of Kafka in a lot of companies where it is used at a very large scale, LinkedIn, Netflix, and so on. So it seems like, to me, uh, the easiest way to explain Kafka is it makes uh, large-scale perhaps real-time data integration much more uh, natural. That is exactly right. So the now with machine learning becoming important, I think uh, companies are coming to realize, you know, machine learning is great, but first we have to get our data in shape to do machine learning. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I think uh, the, the space of machine learning is fascinating, right? Uh, and it is still in the early ages of real-world sort of production adoption. There's a lot of reference architectures proposed by, you know, Hadoop vendors and others. But it suffers from a lot of complexity today, and that is natural for any sort of big area of technology that is taking shape. Uh, on the other hand, what I've seen or, or as in the process of talking to companies uh, that put 
Kafka into real world use is that the domain of machine learning is actually applicable to many traditional scenarios, right? To help businesses make better data-driven decisions or improve business processes, right? So applications like fraud detection, where you're correlating payment information with historical data or known patterns, or cross-selling that involves correlating customer data to make it more personalized, customized offers and discounts, right, before they leave the store. Or predictive maintenance, where you correlate machine data to predict failures before they even happen, right, to allow safety. But everything you've mentioned uh, assumes that you've done your data integration. Yeah, yeah. So the coming to that point, I think the key is that in all of these use cases, you need to process data while it is in motion, which means that you need the ability to collect these events from where they originate and then be able to transfer them to the, you know, machine learning model building process, right? So there are various stages of these machine learning pipelines, and it is one of the more complicated data pipelines that would exist in a company, right? The role of, um, Kafka is to really be the continuous sort of intermediary of sort between, uh, you know, collecting various data sources from where the feature data originates and transfer it to the model building environment where the model is actually built, right? And this could be built using Spark or TensorFlow or Hadoop. And then there is this, um, you know, making the model that is built now available to the production applications that actually serve the results of those models, right? So Kafka is really used as the intermediary between these different phases. And you're exactly right. I think one of the first phases that uh, companies are trying to solve is collecting the data. And one of the early stages of machine learning is actually just, you know, joining streams and creating alerts and, and monitoring features on top of it, which is the thing I see happening very actively right now. I think the next logical stage of it is to, you know, build models and um, do fancier sort of uh, machine learning to, um, you know, put this into production. So another buzzword out there is uh, microservices. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, and uh, as someone who talks to many of these uh, streaming communities, including you guys in, in the Kafka world, uh, yeah. I, I noticed that all the streaming people are talking about microservices. So for <laughs> yes. for those for those people, those of us who aren't uh, following what you all are doing, what is the relationship between streams and microservices? And maybe you should start by giving your own personal definition of uh, microservices. That's a great question. And we seem to be in the center of all these buzzwords, which I'm not sure if it's good or bad. But uh, yeah, let me give you a quick overview of what I mean by microservices. Uh, in fact, when I joined LinkedIn back in 2009, we were actually in the middle of breaking up our own monolithic application. I looked at your LinkedIn profile and one of your early LinkedIn jobs, not not even your last two positions at LinkedIn, you had the word microservice in there. I'm going. Did she just put the, <laughs> did she put this re retroactively or uh, was was it there really at that point in time was that word I already had, in the, in play at that point in time I don't think it was in place so I might have updated it later on right <laughs> I think the word that was in play was uh, back when we were doing this transition I think it, we were in the middle you know after the service oriented architecture sort of area of technology had close to died off and before the advent of microservices, that is the time uh, I'm referring to. I don't think we quite had a name for it. Uh, if I remember correctly, Amazon had successfully, you know, made this transition of uh, breaking the monolith into multiple services. 
And uh, what we called it back then was essentially service-oriented architecture, but it generally didn't have a, a very cool sort of you know, brand associated with it because it was very vendor specific, right? The big vendors had, um, you know, created whatever APIs to get that into sort of use and that didn't work out. But I think like, you know, there's a lot of buzz, like you said, around microservices and, and there's, there are a lot of misconceptions actually out there that it is somehow helpful for scaling reliability and web traffic and all these other kind of things. Uh, my own opinion of microservices is that it, it, it does less of that, but it does uh, help with one thing, which is scaling, you know, software engineering efforts, right? It adds, uh, it lets you add more money and turn it into software at a more constant rate by allowing engineers to focus on various parts of the application and essentially decoupling the big monolith so that a lot of things can happen in parallel development of real applications. But, so that is what it does. I think the upside is that it lets you move fast. It adds certain amount of agility to an engineering organization, but it comes with its own set of challenges, right? And these were not very obvious back then, is that how are all these microservices deployed? How are they monitored, right? And most importantly, how do they communicate with each other? And the communication bit is where Kafka comes in, is that when you break the monolith, right, you break state and you distribute that state across now different machines that run all those different applications. And so now the problem is, well, how do these microservices share that state? How do they talk to each other? And the expectation is that that happens in real time. So in the context of microservices where streams comes in or Kafka comes in is in the communication model for those microservices. And I should just say that there isn't a one size fits all when it comes to communication pattern for microservices. I think um, back then, event-driven microservices were way too new. The primary mode of communication was HTTP, REST, and it still is in many different cases where um, applications talk to other applications in a synchronous request response model using REST APIs. Um, so it really comes down to which design philosophy you prefer. There are certain you know, natural upsides of an event-driven communication model where you don't have tight coupling between applications that talk to each other so that if one fails, you don't have cascading amount of failures, right? Uh, so you can, in fact, not only develop them in isolation and independently, but you can also deploy them independently. And that sort of independence and decoupling that a uh, uh, Kafka log gives you when you use it as a communication mechanism between microservices is a big advantage. But it was also a very new idea back then. So in the last, I think, year or two, a lot of the industries coming around to it, where Kafka is essentially used as the you know messaging streaming backbone for your microservices that allows you to you know build applications, just tap into the central bus, get access to data, and communicate with whatever else uh, out there is uh, is there to communicate with, whether it's applications, data systems. Essentially, I think the idea of building a forward compatible application architecture using Kafka as the central event bus is coming to life fully. But uh, it's very much a, a you know new package form of the old stodgy, you know, service-oriented architecture using enterprise service buses idea, but it's put into practice in the distributed systems landscape. So what would the microservices landscape be if we didn't have streams? That's an interesting question. I think it would be what um, 
is still today, right? So today, I think um, the monolith is being broken down. A lot of applications and services are being created. Uh, if you don't have streams or Kafka, what you end up doing is you end up having microservices talk to each other using a request response protocol, which is either direct HTTP or REST requests, right? If you you know have hundreds of these, then you have these point-to-point connections between different microservices. Not so good. Uh, not so good. Um, in fact, if you see, it's it's fascinating. At some point, I realized this, which seems obvious, which is like the same point-to-point data integration problem that led to the birth of Kafka, you know, is exactly what makes it a good fit to simplify the point-to-point communication, you know, data pattern for microservices. And uh, it, it, it now seems very obvious, but I'm like, wow, okay, so we're coming a full circle, you know, back again and putting Kafka to use for this other use case where we also have this N-square connection problem. So I think, you know, in the absence of streams or Kafka, you would end up with, you know, N-squared sort of um, uh, HTTP or request response kind of communication model between microservices. So tightly integrated microservices is what you would end up with. So going back to Kafka, so we will release this uh, podcast uh, in uh, the later part of November. So what will be the new features of Kafka at that point? Wow. Okay. Uh, that's a great question. So I think uh, a couple different, uh, let me give some context. And, and you can tell your engineer. So I just promised Ben and his audience <laughs> the following features by late November. <laughs> yeah, they would love that, I think. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, there are some I- exciting features coming down the line. Um, some of it might require context on the big features that, you know, were released in Kafka recently, right? So one of them is the exactly once delivery feature in Kafka. I think back in the last major release, we put in exactly once, you know, stream processing semantics into Kafka, which created quite a lot of discussion um, on Twitter and elsewhere. I think uh, this was a pretty big step forward since the last big change in Kafka, which was uh, replication. And it opens up a lot of different use cases for Kafka. The biggest one is that you now have you know, the transactions capability to be able to send messages to multiple different partitions that could be living on different machines and be able to, uh, you know, guarantee that either all of it happens or none of it happens. But more importantly, I think the exactly one's feature is to make stream processing more, you know, widely used, right? One of the key things, in my opinion, that uh, holds the practical application of stream processing back is the ability to get right answers when failures happen, right? What happens when machines fail? Does your computation return the right answer? Can you actually write a stream processing application that counts impressions and at the end of it, you know, depend for on it to give you the right answer, no matter what kind of failures happen underneath the covers? And the answer to that for until now was that no, there isn't an easy way to do that. You have to do a bunch of, uh, you know, complicated data handling around in the application. So the hope that we had uh, and we still do is Kafka is really the underlying, you know, data platform, right? Uh, that is used by a lot of these stream processing systems. How can we provide primitives that are useful so that uh, stream processing systems, whether it is Kafka streams API or others, could actually, uh, you know, program to it and end up with correct uh, stream processing uh, capabilities. So the first part of this feature ended up uh, in the last major release. By November, I think we are looking at the next 
release of Apache Kafka in which uh, we're actually making uh, some of these features more performant and, and faster. So the message I'm sending here is that if you're waiting to use stream processing uh, and exactly once delivering Kafka, then the November release is the right time to use it, I think. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. This exactly once is somehow all the streaming, stream processing frameworks are converging towards this and you all are announcing it around the same time. Um, <laughs> looking ahead, six to 12 months, what are some of the features you think will come out? I think, you know, some of the exciting sort of, um, you know, features are in Kafka and some are in the ecosystem, right? Um, what I think the listeners might be interested in knowing is that one of the features in the ecosystem of Kafka is KSQL, which is uh, the SQL layer for Apache Kafka. I think we've been hearing uh, about the need for the SQL layer for the longest time. And uh, we wanted to wait until we had all the building blocks in place. Uh, now that we have all the building blocks in place, uh, we were really excited to you know, make KSQL available to the whole Kafka community. And this oh, so what, what, is, what is the status? Because I was at your keynote. Yes. So at your keynote, you announced. So we, you, what you're saying is it's not available yet? Uh, it is available in developer preview on GitHub. So it's an open source uh, project. Uh, it lets you do, you know, to tell the listeners a little bit more about what KSQL is. It lets you do stream processing on data in Kafka using simple SQL. So there isn't a, a need to write code in Java or Python or any other programming language. It is completely open source under the Apache 2 license. So it is, um, and it is distributed, scalable. Most importantly, it is interactive. So you have an interactive SQL shell via which you can interact with the data in Kafka. And, um, all of a sudden, like since we announced it, um, the whole community has jumped on it. They've downloaded it. They've given us valuable feedback. Uh, it was almost like the one missing block in the Kafka ecosystem. That is the feedback we've been getting. But um, the key thing about it is that um, it actually takes a very broad view on what stream processing on Kafka entails. You know, a lot of the popular view on streaming SQL layers was that it focuses on, you know, faster analytics, right, which is aggregation and filtering of streams of data. And our view is that it is that and much, much more than that, right? This is something that brings the whole domain of stream processing and databases closer together. It really changes the role of databases in a streaming first world. And uh, that is what Kafka has done so far. It is built as a log underneath the covers, much like the transaction log in databases. But in databases, tables are merely views on this log, right? So the same is true for Kafka and KSQL. Kafka is the source of truth log, and KSQL uh, are the materialized views on top of this log. So you have, instead of static tables, you have these continuously updated tables. And so you can interact with them, you can join in with streams, you can you know, issue point-in-time queries, so in a big way, it's, it's really bridging the gap between databases and stream processing. Uh, and that is what Kafka and KSQL is. Likely, that is what is making it popular. So in the next six months, I think you should see a production-ready version of KSQL, if I may say that. I hope my engineering team is happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> so so the other thing I noticed, so by the way, the, the SQL thing is, again, one of these things that all oh, the stream processing frameworks have started to announce. I think the, the, mm -hmm. the Spark people with structured streaming did it in 2016 or something. But the other thing I noticed after the Kafka Summit, at the Kafka Summit, I talked to a bunch of people and then I started talking to a bunch of other streaming 
communities and mm -hmm. everyone seems to be going towards uh, streaming storage and by streaming storage i mean long-term storage like a year's worth or maybe longer uh -huh. and so i'm assuming uh you folks in the Kafka community are doing something similar but uh, why why do we need storage for long-term storage for streams what kinds of applications are these people thinking about <laughs> I think they're thinking uh, less about specific applications and more about simplifying their operational footprint, right? Because um, what happens over time is when you start to build applications in a stream processing or a streaming first way, and you realize that that is satisfying a lot of your you know, needs for your applications and business cases, then the, then the clear, clear question becomes is like, okay, if I can run it for the last five minute worth of data, and if I can run it for the last, you know, five weeks worth of data, then can I not run it for the last five months of data and so on and so forth using the same, uh, you know, basic data architecture? Why do I need to add more systems to do the same thing? Right. So I think it's more about simplifying, you know, the total number of systems that you have to deal with to do, um, you know, to, to essentially write your applications. For Kafka, this is a very apt, you know, topic because Kafka is built as a, you know, storage log underneath the covers. Technically, if you had the space, you could actually store, you know, infinite amount of retention in Kafka. In fact, New York Times wrote a pretty fascinating blog post recently where they told everyone that they store every piece of journalism ever done since 1851 in Kafka or something like that. And uh, that is not very new thus far. But I think, you know, in Kafka, there are a couple of changes to do if we wanted to increase the amount of retention in Kafka. And in due course of time, that will be likely as well. Technically, what it means is a, a partition needs to be able to live, you know, on more than one machine, right? So essentially, distribution of the log segments needs to uh, be done over a series of machines rather than one. And so technically, that is the change that would be needed in Kafka. But I think simplifying your operational footprint is the key motivation why people are asking for it. Yeah, and then because uh, I guess as you were describing that, I realized right. So this allows you to ask questions uh, over many many different scenarios instead of you having to. Oh yeah, for that question, I have to pull the data out of this long-term storage thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it is uh, definitely just simplifying the total number of things that you have to deal with to do stream processing. So you, we've been talking about Kafka, but you're a co-founder of a company called Confluent. So what is the difference between Kafka and Confluent? Confluent, um, you know, at Confluent are... I'm assuming Google, Confluent is a product too, right? So Yes. Um, so, you know, Confluent uh, is a company that provides an enterprise distribution of Apache Kafka and a fully hosted cloud product. Uh, that is Apache Kafka as a service. Confluent is founded by founders of Apache Kafka. So we came together three years uh, ago to basically increase the adoption of Kafka out in the world into real enterprises. So what, the products that we have um, are, are twofold. One is uh, an on-prem you know, data platform called Confluent Platform, which is essentially there are two flavors of it. One is fully open source and the other is an enterprise distribution. So the fully open source one is meant for providing a good out-of-the-box experience for developers, right? So it has a lot of open source tools, clients, and 
and connectors to different systems along with Apache Kafka. The enterprise version of it, Contour Enterprise, has you know a bunch of tools that you need to when you go to production, right? So the Confluent Control Center to be able to monitor streams at scale and Replicator to be able to do cross data center application. And so those are the products um, that we provide well, on prem. Well, what about security and governance and all of these? Right. So Confluent Enterprise has an enterprise version of Kafka, which, um, you know, has some security plugins in the clients and it has, you know, better data balancing, which is needed for, you know, along with better quota support. So the purpose for that is the mission critical distribution of Kafka when you decide to go to production with it. Along with that, alongside all those products, we have Confluent Cloud, which is a fully hosted and managed Apache Kafka as a service in the public cloud. That is in early access right now. Well, this has been great. It's great to see Kafka thrive. Uh, I uh, was a big fan early on, and I'm not surprised how uh, how far it's come. And uh, it sounds like you folks are just getting started. Thank you for having me, Ben. It's always great to talk to you. I enjoyed the conversation. You can follow Neha Narkeda on Twitter at Neha Narkeda. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.